Welcome to the show where we interview our network of B2B SaaS experts. In this episode, Scott Allison, Chairman and CEO at Allison and Partners, on crafting a story that builds momentum for an organization. This is the Notion Capital Podcast, hosted by Paul Papadimitriou. So, Paul, my name is Scott Allison. I'm the CEO and one of the founders of Allison and Partners. Uh, we are coming up on our 15-year anniversary. We launched our company oh, in wow. 2001 in San Francisco and Los Angeles, right as the dot-com was imploding. <laughs> and we actually officially launched Allison and Partners on September 4th, 2001, which was a week before 9-11. Wow. And it was really out of the ashes of the dot-com bust, 9-11, a huge recession, you know, that we built our company. And you flash forward today, we now have 23 offices around the world from Asia, where we have Chengdu, Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Singapore, Bangkok. We're based in uh, London. We're based in Paris. We're getting set to open our offices in Germany in June and then, you know, 14 offices around the U.S. So it's really out of that dot-com bus, we've been able to build a, a global company and we have some many, many inspirational people that work with the company and really an incredible client portfolio. So it's been somewhat of a magical ride and I've been very appreciative to have that opportunity. Can I just zoom in? Do you only work with startups or companies that are in the tech industry or do you work with any type of companies? Not at all. You know, we started the roots of the company really started in technology and we've got some really incredible stories. We were able to launch MySpace back in the early wow. days. We started working with YouTube when it was seven guys working above a pizza parlor and took them all the way through the launch. We've got a chance to work with Dropbox and WhatsApp and some of the best of the best technology stories in the world. However, but as the company evolved, we have a very big corporate practice. We have a very big consumer practice and technology and healthcare. So the roots are in technology. But if you look at today, our two largest clients are Samsung and Toyota Lexus. So oh, wow. very versed tech and consumer companies as well. When you say tech, and you mentioned some of the big names you've been working with just now, when do you usually start working with companies? Do you start working with them very early in their inception or when they become some more scalable? It's a great question. And I think more recently, it's as companies have become more scalable, we will still work with startups on occasion. And we're very dedicated to the startup market. And I always say we have the luxury now of having some very large clients that gives us the ability to help out with startups. So we will tackle some startups. Uh, we'll serve maybe as an advisor capacity to the startup. And one of the things we really want to do is help them to identify when is the right time to engage PR. Because I'll tell you, some of the mistakes, Paul, is engaging a PR firm too early when you really don't have a lot of things sorted out. It's, you want to have some customers. You want to have some revenue. You want to have some of those things in place to fully appreciate what a PR program can do for you. So what can a PR, because, you know, sometimes in the tech industry, especially with early stage startups, but also sometimes later, PR can have a bad name, which I actually believe it's unfair. So what does a PR company do with, for instance, a startup? What is your added value? Well, I think the biggest thing for us, and you're right, but I think sometimes that people have the wrong connotation of PR. They're thinking of spin 
and <laughs> things of that nature, which it's frankly, you know, media relations and work in the media is part of what we do. Let's take example of WhatsApp was a client of ours. And we had a chance to work very early on with, you know, Jan Coombe, uh, who's a, an amazing CEO, an amazing story, an amazing company. But one of the things that we really did is we worked very closely with Jan to help shape what the story and messaging was going to be around WhatsApp. And that's a big part of what we do. We work with a startup to really shape what the story is, what's meaningful about what they're doing. That's really what we're we're looking to do. And I think that's very different than just putting out there this idea of, well, you'll just put a spin on the story. What you're really trying to do is help startups understand what is the power of what they have? What is the real story behind it? How are they really going to make an impact? And then who are the key target audiences they want to reach? When you tell a story, if I take the example of WhatsApp you just mentioned, I remember seeing Jan Koom's message. I think it was on Flyer Stock or Airline as one of these two. And he actually was thinking of starting WhatsApp. It was, oh, I will do a, a tool that will allow me to tell my friends I'm in this city today. So that was not what it is today, which is a full messaging platform. Do you think that sometimes when you work with companies, do you also help them understand what they actually are? Absolutely. I think one of my most, one of the, my favorite stories of working with a client was working with Jan and we were helping him get ready and do some presentation training. And we were really looking to get anecdotes, real personal stories. And Jan is a, a Russian immigrant. He grew up in Russia and he told an incredible story about when he was a kid, he remembered that his apartment, his family had the only telephone in the apartment building. And he remembered how 24 hours a day, people were coming by, knocking on the door, asking to borrow the telephone. They needed to reach a, a relative, a child who was in another country. And he realized that what a powerful communications tool could be. And he really saw WhatsApp as a communications platform, helping people keep in touch on all these different levels. And, and that was, it was really an inspiring story. I think we worked with him to bring that story out. So is that something you do consistently with other companies as well? Because I would guess that when you're talking about larger clients, their story is already set. Maybe they already have a story that has been accepted by the public. Absolutely. But those stories evolve as they come out with new products and new approaches and particularly technology companies that are looking to change rapidly. You want to make sure then the story is consistent. A lot of times when I work with startups is to try to really develop a simple message because they have what I call phenomena fascination with shiny objects <laughs> and they can try to be all over the place. Try, well, try this, Matt, try that and see kind of throwing things against the wall and see what sticks. And I often say, let's find the simple brilliance. I mean, we've been really fortunate when I look at connecting the dots of Dropbox, WhatsApp, YouTube, it was the brilliant simplicity. And that's oftentimes what we're really helping is to helping these companies to identify what is the brilliant simplicity of your story. The essence. And the essence. And then really pushing to say, why should I care? So it's, whoever the audience is, you want to have to push them sometimes to ask that hard question is, Who cares and why should they care? When you talk like that, it's almost like you're doing branding here. And I'm not talking branding in terms of the logo, but branding as this concept of being what is the philosophy of the company. Because by telling the story of the company, you actually surface what it actually is. There's no question. And I think some of these things now are branding, advertising, social media, PR are so weaved together. 
But I always say at the start of it is this very simple premise of what's your story? About that story, I mean, since the inception of social media, since you use that word, a lot of people were saying now the story is being not only told, but shared and rehashed by the public. How has your work evolved since then? I mean, probably, uh, I remember I also had startups in, during the dot-com booms. It was a very different era even to approach, of course, VCs, but also consumers. Now there's a more a tango between you and the consumer, between you and the VC, because there's a lot of communication tools. How's your work evolved a lot? You're dead on, Paul, with the way you've captured it. I always say it's now a dialogue, not a monologue. In the old days, the monologue used to be that a large, small corporation or startup could push a one-way message out the door. Now it is become a conversation. And you really have to work with clients to help be comfortable with having that conversation. And we look at this model of PESO, which really stands for paid, earned, shared, and owned media and helping clients to understand that they want to participate at all levels. We still do a lot of traditional media relations, you know, engaging a reporter, a writer with the client. That's still a big part of what we do. But we're also putting together much more sophisticated content programs, developing content, avenues for sharing the content. This has definitely created blurring of the lines with ad agencies and branding firms. There's no question. I'll tell you, I had an epiphany you know, not that long ago when there was a major healthcare company issued an RFP and it was the exact same RFP and they gave it to two branding agencies, two ad agencies, and two PR firms. Now, 15 years ago, that would have been unheard of, but they basically said, all right, we're going to give you all the same proposal and we want to see how you think and how your approach is. So basically, now you're competing with all these guys as well. You're competing, but it open. Yes, it's true, and I guess you can look at it as it's a it's a challenge and it's an opportunity. You know, the challenge is there is a lot of competition. The opportunity is you can go after some much broader, bigger, you know, assignments and opportunities. PR has grown extensively since when I started my career in the late '80s. I used to joke that PR was the poor redheaded stepchild to advertising. <laughs> Basically, the ad agencies got all the budget. They would sit in with the big meetings with the CEO and the PR firm had to sit outside and maybe someone say, go write a press release. Totally different animal now. Many, many times we're in the meeting with the CEO and there may not even be an ad agency. So the industry, this communications industry has, has changed dramatically. I, I always say, Paul, and I absolutely believe this. This is the golden age of public relations. It's not necessarily the golden age of publicity. And I think these are two very distinct things. I think it's very important you say that because I think part of what I said earlier at the top of the show about the bad name of PR is that still a lot of people consider PR as I need to be written on Tank Crunch and thus I need a PR agency to find me the right guy to write me a Tank Crunch. Whereas actually your role has augmented much, much more now. Are companies understanding that? Are they, you use the word comfortable, are they comfortable now to talking? Not, with- not always, not always. And that's, it's, it's definitely an evolution in process because you'll still have a potential client say, I'd like to pay you a small fee each month. Just get me in Tech Crunch. The challenge is, is there is far fewer reporters than there used to be. So it can be more challenging to find the right media outlet. And oftentimes now there's a lot more work that goes into shaping that story. A lot of startups think that it's simply news itself, that they've been formed, or maybe they've got a bit of funding. But as I said, Paul, before that earlier, that things of who cares, 
is a big part of this thing. Why should someone care about your company? And oftentimes think people will say, oh, well, hire a PR firm. They can, they can cover up. A PR firm can't cover up a shitty product. A PR firm, you know what I'm saying is a PR, you don't bring a PR firm to mask over a defective product that you don't have the proper funding, the right team in place, and frankly, that no one cares about. There's another part of your job, of PR job, is also to manage crises, right? First of all, is that something you do? And how often is that happening? Oh, nonstop. Every, every <laughs> month, every month or, you know, around the world, we're helping different clients with different crisis situations on so many different levels. And I think a lot of it is flamed by social media. You have a yeah. lot of instances and situations that 20 years ago would have gone completely unnoticed. You know, somebody might have wrote a letter to the company and maybe they would have given them a response and, but a much slower process through social media, you can call attention to so many different scenarios. And that has really caused for companies to really up their game on their crisis communications efforts and crisis communications preparation. By upping the game, some companies are also insourcing this, right? They are hiring people that will deal with crisis management within their company, also hiring people that will deal directly with PR within their company. So is your role still relevant? Well, I, absolutely. Because many times what happens is if you hire an individual or individuals, you're only as good as their background or skill set. And there's now such a wide variety of, of crises coming to shape. You know, we have virtually 25 people that are on our crisis team around the world. And their backgrounds are incredible from securities fraud, privatizations, security breaches, airline crashes, you know, earthquakes, ill-born illness. Virtually, you couldn't come up with a crisis that I haven't had someone on my team that's probably handled two things just like it. Now, if you just hired one or two people, you're only going to be as good as their background or what they have direct experience with. But one thing, though, with the crisis, and then I'll move on, with crises is you also it's something that you prepare. It's not only something you react to. So you also teach your clients how to prepare for an eventual crisis, whatever it might be. Absolutely. A big part of crisis preparation is having a crisis plan in advance with a few different scenarios. So even just down to the exercise, if people know who to call, contact information 24-7, email, so that you immediately can pull together your crisis team and get the information out. The reality is you can't prepare for everything because I would say no two crises are the same, but you can at least put in an infrastructure in place on how you're going to handle it. To our listeners who are mostly in the startup world, one of the potential crises that is happening right now is that potential downturn in funding. You mentioned that you went through the dot-com bust uh, like I did in 2001. I'm not going to ask you if it's happening or not, but is it something that you have to now also work with companies to manage expectations, whether for the public when they read, oh, this company is, has have to have a down round, for instance, or stuff like that. So is that something you do as well? Absolutely. And it's funny, it is a little bit eerie. You went through it, Paul, as I did. I launched my company and went through the dot-com bust and trying to rebuild through that. I'm sure it's different everywhere, but Silicon Valley is absolutely a boom and bust town. And I think what we're seeing now is a real interesting phenomenon when the so-called unicorns are struggling now with some of their financing pieces. And at the end of the day, a lot of these companies still aren't profitable. And that's the big thing for startups. You've got to understand, you've got to make money. 
And I think that's the new mantra coming out. This idea was well, same thing we had in dot com. Remember, everybody used to always say eyeballs and stickiness <laughs> and, you know, just grow that. Never mind your revenue. The whole thing imploded. And we're starting to see glimmers of this right now. Financing's getting harder. Uh, people aren't as excited to back these massive unicorns who are still yet to be profitable. So I, I guess it was Warren Buffett always had the great line. So when the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming naked. And right now, unfortunately, Paul, there's a lot of naked people out there and they don't have the proper fine. I'm actually hearing a phrase that I have not heard since dot com days. And that's the walking dead. Yeah. And the yeah. walking dead are those companies who they're not profitable yet and they're not going to get another round of financing. So eventually they don't have enough runway. And I think you're going to see another big round of failures over the next 18 months. It is just part of the, the boom and bust cycle. But so many of the euphoria that people get involved in, they think that, it, oh, it can't happen again. And it's happening big time in San Francisco and Silicon Valley right now. Sometimes perceptions are reality, right? Uh, so the fact that you might be in that same wave, so you, you have naked people, you have the working dead, but your company is still profitable. But since the, the noise is becoming so loud, you might be actually grabbed into that bucket. So uh, do you have such companies that are not naked, not working dead, that are reaching out to you now and say, we need to differentiate, we need to actually tell our story, we are actually profitable, we will Absolutely, absolutely. The idea that you want to be more aggressive sometimes even in a downturn and really differentiate yourself, I think is a critical message. And it's critical for a couple of reasons. One, you want to set the stage for future financing rounds if you need them. Two, it's also incredibly competitive on talent in many, many markets in London, where I hit sit today, and in San Francisco. And a lot of the talent now is starting to really question business models. They are being much more um, asking a lot more questions about the sustainability of the business model before just jumping and taking a startup role. The other thing is, I think people are very discouraged about the liquidity markets. So the idea of the old of I'm going to get big stock options. And I'm going to join a startup and there's going to be an IPO and I'm going to get rich. Paul, how many IPOs have we seen? Yeah, the, IPO, the, IPO, the IPO market has really, really dried up. So the exit strategy has become very frustrating. It's become very frustrating from venture capitalists and the people backing these deals and also employees as well. The other thing that is interesting with the scope of your company and yourself, Scott, because you live in the U.S., but you do travel, is that different? So you just mentioned, of course, the, the downturn and the, the bust that might happen to Silicon Valley. How different is your job in other countries, whether it's, of course, the U.K., but probably also other uh, continents? How different it is? And do you feel that startups have a different startups and tech companies have a, a different way of thinking, of telling the stories, of reacting to events? It's an interesting DNA of an entrepreneur that you can find in Asia, Europe, and the U.S. So there's similarities in the DNA of how you know companies are built. I think you do have to adapt to a local market. China has been so strong and growing so rapidly, but even they've hit a bit, a little bit of a speed bump. In London, I just saw over, and you might know the name of Paul. There was a, a large company that just has failed here that was thought of a tech superstar. I was reading this in the, in the paper over the weekend. It's kind of happening everywhere, but I think you see the DNA of entrepreneurs and it's this huge optimism that they yeah. really believe they're changing the world. And it doesn't matter which corner of the world they live in. You do see this kind of link in a DNA. Is it harder for you to uh, 
find that story from entrepreneurs, whether they're in London or in Beijing, than it is with someone living in the US. I'm, I'm saying that no, in no disrespect for anyone, but sometimes it feels that the US is a more marketing-driven country. You take the ball and you run and you'll figure it out how to actually make the touchdown. Whereas in Europe, for instance, we have a tendency to think more like you know association football, like you call soccer in the US. And when we have it figured out, then we run with it. I think there's some truth. I think the, the, the US, Paul, tends to run at a faster pace. I think success has come more quickly. There's broader markets tell a story. There's a lot more funding out there. And I think what I see in London, we, we've seen some fantastic companies here in London. It's been great to get to know the local tech scene. But I think London, a lot of Europe, is still waiting for some of their big breakthroughs. I think they're still looking to see what's going to be the WhatsApp that comes out of London or the Dropbox. So there's some really good technology here. There's some really smart people here. There's a pretty good venture community here. But I still think that Europe is waiting for what's going to be the big home run that truly defines the market. Which will also help that company to rise above the noise, right? Absolutely. And it's funny because I think what happens when you work with a U.S. startup in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, their whole approach is we're going to create a global company. What happens when we're talking to companies in Europe or in Asia, they tend to think in a more regional kind of manner. Oh, well, this company, we think it's going to be very scalable in Europe or it's going to be very scalable in Asia. The mentality in the U.S. is much more, we're going to conquer the world. Since we are maybe in front of another downturn, it also means that the budgets of uh, startups and tech companies and other companies you work with will be tighter. Do you have any, is there any, steps, practical steps that can help a company at the same time still being very effective with its PR, but managing maybe its budget in a tighter way. It's true. And there's a dichotomy. There is a downturn that's, that's underway, but it doesn't always reflect in budgets because I would ah. say even the, there's a scarcity of talent, even amongst the agency world. So our costs have gone up substantially. Rent, healthcare, salaries are all going through the roof. We have to be able to pass those costs on. So the idea, well, budgets are going to get tight. Are we going to get some budget relief? Not really. And oftentimes in a downturn, you're going to need to spend more to cut through the noise and really to differentiate. In some cases, I will absolutely advise like, well, I think you're best suited hiring a freelancer or a consultant who can help you through this, this patch or period. But I think if you really want to get that story out there and you believe you have something meaningful, you've got the right product, you've got the right audience, you understand, that's the time to go for it. And you might have a limited window to spend, spend a little bit heavier to cut through the clutter. Another thing you mentioned earlier was content. It is true that now content marketing, to use that term, is being used more and more as a tool to differentiate, but also to rise above the noise. I think I read a, a stat that GE nowadays produces more content than Time magazine. And you mentioned that it was also a role that now you had to undertake as well to help clients uh, create that content. It's a bit like LinkedIn. You know, when you don't have a job, you're very active on LinkedIn, and we do have a job, you tend to forget about it. And then suddenly, oops, I need to get back to it because now I need my connections. So do you, do you advise people to rise above the noise now that they still have the means and not wait? No, no question, no question. And I think the content play, it, it's a fascinating time because I think, as I said, 20 years ago, if you couldn't get a trade reporter excited about your product, you'd be dead in the water. There was no other way to get the word out. Now it's limitless on how you can get the word out. But then the thing is you need to get the word out correctly. 
And everybody says content, content, content. But I think the missing piece is it's got to be good content. Because as you are, you're a consumer of content, Paul, as am I and everybody else. There's only so many things you can look at in a given day. So you're actually looking for something meaningful and relevant. And I think that's what we're encouraging clients now is to be develop meaningful content on a consistent basis. Because there's nothing worse than a company. So we've launched a blog. Great. How many blog posts? Oh, we did one about six months ago. <laughs> it, is, it, it takes work. It you does. Know, it takes work to really keep it writing blog posts, putting posts on LinkedIn, amplifying through Twitter and other outlets to keep that message and keep that content out there and current. That's a big job. So now I would ask the question is slightly more broad than PR because first of all, we're running almost out of time and I, I could talk with you for, for an hour. Yeah, it's been great. You launched your company, the latest company in 2001, a downturn and you're still here today. That's also something that is very valuable. It means that you created a rock solid company what type of philosophy do you have inside of your company? What are the key things that makes you not differentiate amongst your competitors, but as a company, as a solid company that will weather these downturn that will still be there in 15 years in another podcast we'll make together? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it has been real key. I think for us, we want to have diversity of portfolio. So when we launched the company, we said we don't want to just be a technology PR firm. We know that can be cyclical. So if you look at our client portfolio now, it's so broad in consumer, tech, healthcare. We're very diversified. We have a small amount of great startups that we work with. But if you were a firm that was based solely on technology startups, it's going to be a very, very difficult road ahead. So to be able to build a firm for the long haul. I'm very proud that we have 350 people that we employ around the world, good jobs that we've created from Chinese citizens to European citizens, obviously people in the US. We've been able to really build the foundation. And for us, it's always been a couple of things. We always said it's about the work, just do great work. The other thing is we've had to constantly evolve. And we say, you have to lead, you have to reinvent. We're constantly developing new products, new research, new things for our client to see. So if we weren't involving and changing our offering, it's so easy to fall behind. So. I feel very comfortable as we continue to grow and thrive. The next 15 years are going to be our best. If I read you well, you've basically created a very entrepreneurial environment within your company. Absolutely. We do something else too we call one P&L. So a lot of companies fall apart because they have these mini P&Ls and everybody's fighting against each other for revenue. We said a long time ago, we're going to do one P&L. So it's truly going to benefit the clients and our employees. Don't worry about fighting with revenue about somebody in your company. Just focus on what's doing best for your client. Well, that was amazing talking to you. As I said, I could have talked to you for more than half an hour. We'll have to do that again. How can people reach you if, uh, and find about you if they want to? Well, real easy on our website is allisonpr.com. And there's a lot of information about the company, a lot of information on local offices around the world. My email is scott at allisonpr.com. Real easy to remember, and people can drop me a note anytime. Love hearing from people around the world. On that, thank you so much. Paul, great talking to you. Thanks for the time. 